Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our Tuesday night Bible study. Is this good, the uh, person? The mic and stuff? Good. Okay. Let's open our uh, time in prayer. Our blessed God, Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can be here and open up your holy and precious word. And we are always 100% dependent on you to understand anything, especially from the word of God. And so, Father, we look to you tonight to speak to us through your Holy Spirit and to illuminate these pages that we might receive something from you and take it in and understand it and be blessed. So we just commit this time to you in our Savior's precious name. Amen. So if I were to say to you what happened in the spring of 2020, you'd probably think it was the start of the pandemic, right? And you'd be right. But also on Tuesday nights in 2020, some of you may remember it. I'm not going to have a quiz here. But we were going through the epistle to the Hebrews. And if you remember, <clears throat> the writer to the Hebrews, his argument was that Christ is superior to Judaism. And that was the message all the way through. And he compares it to many different aspects of Judaism. And Christ was always superior. And I was reminded of that when I was uh, looking at Colossians chapter 2, because this is what Paul is doing in Colossians chapter 2. He's telling us that Christ is superior to any other form of wisdom, any other system, any other religion, any other whatever the idea or practice was, Christ is superior. And in fact, the Christians were being challenged by different people. People were trying to captivate them, bring them into their line of thinking, and the Apostle Paul is concerned about that. And uh, Tim Knuth gave us a good introduction or about this problem last week. He talked about the Colossian error, and we don't have too many specifics on it, but we know what the tendencies were, and we're going to see a little more of that tonight. But I want to start by looking at verse 9. We're going to look at most of the verses in this chapter, but uh, maybe not in order. So to me, verse 9 and 10 are key verses. In the New King James Version, we read, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So we have that, that designation that comes up a lot in this book, in him. There's no... Uh, question as to where the fullness of God is. It's in Christ. And this is localized. It's a spatial relationship. It's not a mystical relationship. God's saving action happens in the person of Christ. In verses 9 to 13, every verse contains the word either in Christ, in him, or with Christ. Just to show that Christ is the center of God's saving activity. Christ came in the flesh, he was a real person. He said and did de definite things. And what that means is we can't just make of him what we want. He isn't just an idea that we can play with. He was a person. And what he said was recorded. We can't change it. So, and there were people who were trying to deny the incarnation. And the Apostle John later, some 20, 30 years later, is going to deal with this because the problem only grew 
and he really emphasized that Christ came in the flesh, and uh, we, we, we touched him, we felt him, etc. So, we read here that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Uh, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV say the fullness of deity. What is the fullness of the Godhead or deity? Uh, he is fully God and he's fully human. The word was made flesh. We saw this last week. And the, the word here means that uh, all the divine qualities and attributes, not just the divine qualities and the attributes of God, but the very essence of God dwelt in Christ. The whole glorious total of what God is, the supreme nature in its infinite entirety, someone said, dwells, dwelt in Christ. And then he goes on to say that he, for in him dwells all the fullness of, God, of the Godhead bodily. The body of Jesus was fashioned by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. In that body, Jesus lived and displayed his essential deity. In that body, he died. In that same body, he rose from the dead. In that body, he ascended into heaven. In that body, he is now seated on the throne of God, serving as our great high priest. In that same body, he is to come and sit on the throne of David and rule over the empires of the earth. That body is now his forevermore. We believe in the personal and bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just a vague idea. So Christ is both human and deity. Now theologians in the early centuries, church fathers, there was a council of Chaldeson, not sure if I'm saying that right, in AD 40, 451. They produced a number of definitive statements about this fundamental truth. And Millard Erickson, a theologian, he sets forth five principles from that time. The incarnation was more a gaining of human attributes than a giving up of divine attributes. The union of the two natures means that they do not function independently. The divine nature of Christ was in some way limited by the circumstances of being in union with the human nature, but this was not a full limitation of, of his divine ability. By way of illustration, if the world's fastest sprinter was running in a three-legged race, his union with another runner would limit his ability to run in that circumstance, but it would not limit his ability to be the fastest sprinter in the world. So Christ limited himself, but it, it did not limit his deity. Christ is fully God and fully human, and Christ reveals to us what God and fully human actually mean. Christ was not fully like us. We are fallen humanity, and he is full humanity. The incarnation is God becoming man, not man becoming God. So <clears throat> we could think on that and muse on that for a long time, but that's the essence of this chapter, that the fullness, I think this is our key verse, in him dwells all the fullness of deity or the Godhead bodily in Christ. And as I was meditating upon this, I thought it's so appropriate that we spend an hour every week on Sundays thinking on the Lord Jesus Christ and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of our faith, the center of God's uh, demonstration to us. Now we go on to read in verse 10. Okay. Here we are. Whoops. Here we go. 
Well, that was that. I missed that one. Verse 10. You're, you are complete in him. So this is the other side of the coin, if I could put it that way. We're complete in him. The believer is a, is a member of the Lord's mystical body, the church. And the word complete means to be made full. So we are filled full in him. Our fullness comes from his fullness. And it's only in Colossians that we read that Christ was the head of the body. So we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but we are not always full of the Holy Spirit, right? Like we're exhorted to be. So to experience this fullness, we have to draw close to him and let him test our hearts and walk with him. I have here an illustration I've always liked. This is, can people see this on Zoom? It's a glove, right? Here's a glove, and uh, I can go like this. This glove is not very strong, right? This glove is weak and useless. If I put sand in this glove, it wouldn't be much better. If I put water in it, it would be worse. If I put the hand in this glove a little bit, it's getting a little stronger, a little tighter, but it's still not that good, is it? Couldn't do a thing. The more I put the hand in the glove, the stronger the glove gets, the better the glove is. So if I put my hand fully in this glove, we have a glove that can do all sorts of things, and that is a useful tool in God's uh, handiwork. And if we let the Holy Spirit fill us, it'll be like this hand in this glove. We will, we will be strong, we will be useful, we'll be used to the glory of God. Like this glove is supposed to act like a glove, but he can't unless the hand is in the glove. We want to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of Christ, because in him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily. And we're complete in him. So that's our privilege as Christians to have Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. Okay. Our blessings in Christ. Now we're going to move on here and look at uh, verses 11. And we have a number of blessings. Verses 11 to 13, 15 rather. We have a number of blessings that I'm just going to run over them, or go over them rather. It says, in him you were also circumcised, in verse 11, with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we know that circumcision in the Old Testament was something done on the outward skin, but the circumcision in the New Testament is God changing our hearts. And this has happened to us uh, in Christ. And then it says in verse 12, we're buried with him. We're connected with him and we're raised with him. We're buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is the truth that we see illustrated in baptism. But spiritually speaking, when we came to Christ, we died with him and we rose with him. And then in verse 13, we read, And being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, made alive, he, made, he has made alive together with him. So we've been made alive, we're alive in Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And then we have in verse 13, 
and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made all together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, and so on, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way and have nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them in it. So he's triumphed over sin, and he's triumphed over all of our sin, so much so that we can be forgiven in Christ. We have the uh, complete salvation in Christ. So it's a big study to go through these terms here, what we have in him. We've been circumcised in our heart. We've been buried and raised with him. We have new life with Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins in Christ. So these are all very dense and delightful passages that we don't, we're just skimming over them tonight. I want to go back to verse 1. And uh, as I was meditating on this chapter, my mind kept going to other scriptures. And it made me think of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, I'll read it for you. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I don't know if you ever noticed that verse. But it sort of gives us the... Um, directs us to compare Scripture to Scripture. Because things spiritual and things spiritual, what is spiritual? The Word of God. So when we do Bible study, it's interesting to compare with other Scriptures. We start off here, he says in verse 1, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And as for many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And I was thinking of Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. So this conflict has been going on for a long time. It was a conflict against God's anointed in David and certainly against the Lord Jesus Christ. And this spiritual conflict continues uh, with Paul praying for the Christians. Then we go on and we read it's prayer. He says that their hearts may be encouraged because Paul wasn't there. He was in Rome in a, under a guard. That their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love. Their hearts knit together in love. And it made me think of Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like, dew, it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And I think we've all experienced that in our church life, in other places, the unity of Christ, and what a blessing it is. And he says, this is what I want for you. I want you to be of one mind, of one spirit. I want you to enjoy each other's company. I want you to be blessed together, knit together in love. And there's no stronger bond than when a group of Christians is knit together in love, when there's an understanding and when there's a blessing. <clears throat> and this is what he's praying for them. 
that they would have this love one for another. And then he says, uh, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. And I just was musing on this idea of riches and I, my mind went to Psalm 19. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The psalmist was not interested in any other riches than the riches of God and was blessed by his word, and that's our experience too. And then he goes on to say, uh, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. And he wanted them to be certain of their faith, certain of where they stood. And one thing that Satan does is he goes after the mind, sows doubts, sows, sows lies, wants people to be unsure of their faith, wants people to be timid, wants people to be... Um, paralyzed but Paul would say in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 for this reason I also suffer these things nevertheless I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep what I have committed to him until that day so he was persuaded he had certainty and he wanted this certainty for them the full assurance of understanding then he goes on to say the knowledge of the mystery of God of the Father of Christ. It's no longer a secret, right? In Colossians, in our same book here, verse 26, we read the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. And then he goes on to say both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I was just, I had been meditating on Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I'm awake, I'm still with you. So the knowledge and the wisdom that God has is infinite. And that's our blessing in Christ. To know uh, the wisdom of God. <clears throat> because these Christians were being challenged by people who were saying that they didn't have this wisdom. And then he goes on to say in verse four, now I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And the Psalms are full of this, very, a number of passages in the Psalms. Psalm 52 verse one, your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. So this is nothing new. It's interesting what, uh, what Paul is writing to them. Now, we're moving on. And in our passage, if we go back and we go back to verses 8 to 23, I like very much Mr. John Phillips. He said we have a warning against intellectualism, ritualism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. <laughs> if we were to go into these verses, the first one, of course, is um, <clears throat> verse 8. Beware of anyone, lest anyone cheat you through, through philosophy and empty uh, deceit, according to the tradition of man and the basic principles of this world. 
So the key here is that the origin is man. The origin of our wisdom is the revelation of God. It wasn't some man who thought up the Bible, right? It comes from God. We have a revelation. We don't have uh, man's wisdom here. So, uh, are we being led away through something, something that uh, we think is greater, more powerful, more true than the Word of God? Do we put our trust in something other than the Word of God? Perhaps we are challenged in that in our day. And I'm not going to, I don't have the time to go through all these things. I think that perhaps this intellectualism is the one that is the most uh, tempting to us these days. Uh, because there's, man has a lot of knowledge and uh, it's all at our fingertips and we can be enticed by it and drawn away from the Word of God and believing that our answers are in the Word of God. But then he goes on, if we go through these verses, verses 11 to 13, he's talking about circumcision, he's talking about baptism, and uh, in essence, different sorts of rituals. And then legalism, verses 14 to 17, trying to get rid of our guilty conscience through working rather than believing in Christ. And then he talks about angels in verses 18 to 19. Um, and we're not, uh, how shall I say, in our, in our circumstances here, I don't know too many people who are trying to communicate with angels, but I do know that when we lived in France, a lot of people prayed to the saints and to Mary and to other people. And uh, this is wrong. We don't need this. We have Christ. And then there's a section on asceticism where these people were punishing their bodies so that they could find God. I'm not so sure that's our biggest problem these days, but uh, in any case, the answer is in Christ and in his holy and precious word. So, let's go back to the exhortation that we have in verse 5. He says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in... No, sorry, verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfast of your faith, steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He salutes their good order. And... We are familiar with this term in 1 Corinthians 11, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and rest I will set, the rest I will set in order when I come. And then he says in verse 40 of chapter 14, let all things be done decently and in order. So God is a God of order. All we have to do is look at creation around us and look at the, how the worlds turn. They turn in order. And then we read about being steadfast. What does it mean to be steadfast? Uh, it's fixed in a fixed direction, stead, a steadfast gaze, firm in purpose, unwavering, firmly established, firmly fixed in a place or position. That's just the definition of steadfast. But we read in Psalm 57, verse 7, thousand years before Christ, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. And then Psalm 112, verse 7, He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. So this is something that God gave to his servants many years ago. And in Christ, the Lord wants us to be steadfast. Six, here's our exhortation. As you therefore have received Christ, 
Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. It's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The Lord wants us to be rooted and grounded in Christ. And then Psalm 127 says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. So we have uh, these same truths throughout God's word. And we have all these things now in Christ. And then I'd like us to close with verse 18 and 19. We have this image. Uh, verse 19, and not holding, okay, uh, verse 18, let no one cheat you out of your reward, okay? None of us like to be cheated. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he's not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So he's exhorting us to be um, knit together, holding fast to the head, holding fast to the head. It's in Colossians that we have this truth about Christ as the head of the body, and our, our duty is to be close to the head and stay close to the Lord Jesus. So how do we, how do, we do that? And uh, we stay close to the head through meditating on his word, right? Through daily devotions. Daily devotions aren't just for academic purposes. It's to clean our souls. The Lord says in a great house, in 2 Timothy 2.20, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel for honor sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So that is our, the Lord can't use us if we're not clean vessels. So we draw close to God through his word. And then I'd suggest to you as well a way of, of, of uh, <clears throat> holding fast to the head, to Christ, is our church meetings. In Matthew 18, verse 19, we read, Again, I say to you that if two, or two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So there's a sense that when we come together for our church meetings, Christ is not only a sense, but Christ is with us uh, in a more stronger presence than when we are alone. I mean, God is everywhere. God is with us. When we come together in his church, he's there in a special way, whether it be in this church or another church where people are gathered in his name, Christ is there. And I think that is a, uh, that is a reason why we should come to, I, th I would suggest to you, and I've suggested it before, that's the primary reason that we come to meetings. Uh, we don't come to eat the Lord Jesus like some folk do, but we come to meet the Lord Jesus. We come to be in his presence 
and listen to him speak to us. And uh, that's the privilege of coming to our meetings. We don't come to listen to a speaker. We don't come even to be, we, we do come to be with each other. There's fellowship. We do appreciate the teaching of God's word, but away above and beyond all that, we come to be with the Lord. And I was uh, <clears throat> sharing with some folk the other night of Psalm 147. There's a few phrases in there where it says, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. And I was meditating on that. And I said, you know, I don't always sing to the Lord. I kind of just sing, you know. <laughs> I might enjoy the words, but uh, I remember my dear mother in this auditorium here, and I was... I must have been 16, because that's what I was in 1967, maybe a little older. And the place was full, and there was a gentleman, I won't mention who he was, but he was an older gentleman. And he was just singing to beat the band, and way out of tune, and different than everybody else. And I made a little comment to my mother about it. I said, Mr. Sons, he really is singing out there, and she kind of picked up on what I was trying to say. And she said, Brian, he's singing to the Lord. <laughs> He's singing to the Lord. Let him be. <laughs> and uh, that was precious. And it stayed in my mind. So when we come together, we need to sing to the Lord. We come to be with the Lord, to sing to the Lord, and to listen to the Lord. Now it is true that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, there's an interesting verse. Uh, Paul says this, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. And so on. So it's possible for Christians to come together for the worse. But of course, that's not what we want to do, right? We want to come together for the good. We want to come together, confess our sins to God, get right with our brothers and sisters, and enjoy the Lord's presence in our midst. And that's a way of, of holding fast to the head because it's from the head where we get nourished and we're knit together, joints and ligaments grows with increase that is from God. So we have to be connected to the head and together we grow together. It's a beautiful image. So may God bless... Uh, <clears throat> these verses to our heart and help us to follow the Lord Jesus, uh, come together to be with him primarily, and to enjoy fellowship with each other. Our blessed God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the word of God, and we thank you that it is not man's wisdom, it's not a vain philosophy, but it's your revelation, and it's the holy and precious and powerful and living word of God. So I pray that you would take your word, work it in our hearts, bless us, guide us, instruct us. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.